Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Res. If you would remain standing as we transition to our worship in the Word. Uh, if you would open your Bibles, we're going to continue in our study of Luke. We're going to be Luke 45 through the end of the chapter. I know there was a good bit of excitement as we were going through John through the Easter season of people reading ahead and being engaged in reading before the preaching. So uh, we want to continue to urge you and encourage you to stay ahead in the reading. We're going through look, going through Luke. Stay ahead, be reading, I promise you there's a lot to be gained and uh, there's a lot to be seen as you read it on your own and then worship together as we celebrate in the Word together on Sunday. So stay reading ahead. Guess where we'll be next week? Luke (laughs) chapter 12 verse 1. So you already know where we're going. All right, here we are, Luke 11, 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of the knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Res Church. If you're new, my name's Bradley. I'm also one of the elders. Uh, I have the privilege of teaching. So if you're new to Res, we just want you to know we're glad you're here. Res, let's welcome our guests this morning. Amen. Probably one of the strangest events in the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, occurs in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, when Jesus comes up on a fig tree. You might remember this story. There's a fig tree that Mark tells us is in leaf. In leaf means that the tree was not quite ready to have a full crop of figs, but it was full of leaves. And typically speaking, when a fig tree was was in leaf, you would find these small little edible buds on them. Well, Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry. And he comes up to this fig tree that's in leaf, probably expecting to find these little edible buds, not a full crop of figs, mind you, but something to eat, and he finds nothing on this tree. It's full of leaves, but it's empty. It's barren. And not because I think he's hangry. He curses the fig tree, and it withers from the root up. One of the oddest things in the Bible about the life of Jesus. What's interesting is that event is immediately preceded by Jesus going into the temple and throwing out the money changers. Now, if you know anything about what was going on at that time, it was Passover. And so the temple, this eighth wonder of the world, was bustling with people and religious activity. In in one sense, the temple looked fruitful. It looked like it was full of life. But what Jesus discovered when he got into the temple was that it was actually barren and he throws out the money changers. That cursing of the fig tree was like an acted out parable to really make this one simple point. 
Sometimes the appearance of fruitfulness is nothing more than an indication that there's really barrenness when you look more closely. That's kind of like what was going on with the Pharisees last week as Jesus pronounces three woes over the people that we know to be the religious experts, the religious elite. Jesus says to them, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of wickedness. He tells them that you tithe meticulously off herbs. You pinch off 10% of a mint leaf and you put it in the offering and you love being revered and awed and given the best seats and the warmest greetings for your religious piety. But the truth is, on the inside, you're full of wickedness. You're dirty, even though you look clean on the outside. The Pharisees had the appearance of fruitfulness. But in reality, they were barren. Israel is governed at this time in history by a two-party system, very similar to our own. You have one party as the Pharisees. They are the conservatives. They're the religious elite. They're the gatekeepers of Israel's traditions and feasts. They're politically conservative. They believe in miracles. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. Contrasted with the Sadducees, you've heard of them before, they are the more liberals. They are the Rome sympathizers. They're the social experts. They're pragmatists. They're opportunists. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But these two groups come together to form the governing body in Israel under Rome's occupation, known as the Sanhedrin. There was a third group, sort of. This third group, we know them better as the scribes. They're the first century equivalent in Israel of lawyers. They're law experts, experts on all 613 laws recorded in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. And on top of those 613 laws, hundreds, thousands of additional rules and laws that factored in contemporary practices that were not specifically mentioned in the law. These guys are experts in all of that. Lawyers and scribes might lean more or less toward one party or the other, Pharisees or, or Sadducees, but here's what we know. We've seen this in Luke they seem to be right alongside these Pharisees in all these confrontational episodes that we find in the gospel with Jesus. And so that is certainly the case here in Luke 11. Let's look at verse 45 again. One of the lawyers answered him, Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Wow. Wow. Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees, and the lawyers speak up and say, hey, we're offended too. You insult us also. Why? I think, because here's what's true of the lawyers, just like the Pharisees, even though they have done everything they possibly can to keep themselves pure, they are actually impure. And in projecting this, you know, pious effort to help others stay pure, they're actually leading others, like the Pharisees, in their impurity. And so I think the lawyers are smart enough to pick up on the fact when Jesus pronounces these three woes over the Pharisees, hey, he's talking about us too. But more than that, that third woe, the third woe that he gave to the Pharisees, did you notice it it leaves out the direct object of Pharisees. The first two woes say, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you, Pharisees. And the third one just says, woe to you, plural, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So without saying it directly, I think Jesus has already implied, hey, lawyers, I'm talking to you also. They speak up and say, hey, you're offending us right alongside the Pharisees. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond with, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I offended you. Not what he does. Verse 46, he said, woe to you lawyers too. 
For you load people, there's three woes for the lawyers. Here's the first one. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Let me put that in my own words. Woe number one is, rather than aiding the people of God in their faithfulness to him, you're burdening them unnecessarily, and you're exempting yourselves from those burdens. The scribes and the Pharisees alike were supposedly attempting to help people avoid transgressing against the law of God by writing, like I said, these embellishments, these elaborations on the law of God or the law of Moses that factored in contemporary practices not specifically addressed in the law. And these elaborations were known as the traditions of the Pharisees. Traditions like, we've already encountered one, you must, it's law, you must wash your hands before you eat. Or another example, when it comes to the Sabbath and keeping it holy, there were a host of regulations that told you what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. I'll give you a modern-day example. Someone told me this just recently. There was a building being constructed in New York City in the Jewish district of New York City. It was being built for Jews, observant Jews, rabbis. I don't know if it was residential or an office complex, maybe both. But the rabbis overseeing this project, apparently, went to the construction workers and they said, here's what we want you to do, specifically those that were installing the elevator. We want you to program the elevator to stop automatically on every floor of this building from sundown to, to uh, sundown on Sabbath to, sun, you know, to the end of Sabbath, basically. Okay? On the Sabbath, we want the elevator to stop at every floor because we don't want our people to have to push the button on the Sabbath because that would be work. They could take the stairs, but we don't want them to have to push the button. These are the kinds of things that these lawyers were doing. And not unlike our many of our politicians in Washington, D.C., Let's not go there too much this morning. They put these burdens on the people, unnecessary burdens, not prescribed in the law of God. And because they are the creators, maintainers of this system, they find creative ways to exempt themselves from those burdens. That's woe number one. Here's woe number two. Let's read verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Let me attempt to summarize what Jesus is saying in those verses. Twice he says to the lawyers, you build the tombs of dead prophets. Once in verse 47 and again in verse 48. I don't think that the scribes or the lawyers were literally building tombs for these prophets. I think this is a metaphorical reference to the fact that they supposedly honor the prophets of old. And by prophets, Jesus means any messengers that were sent by God to his people from the get-go all the way back to Abel. Many of these prophets and messengers were persecuted or slain by their fathers. And Jesus says, these lawyers consent to the deeds of their fathers. How? My sense is because they, again, they're maintaining, sustaining, and perpetuating the same kind of system that led their fathers to kill the prophets and the messengers of God of old. 
And he says two things about that reality. Their blood is on your hands. Their blood is on your hands because you're perpetuating the same kind of rule-based living in relationship with the living God. And because you consent to that, even though you purportedly honor these prophets, because you consent to that, inevitably, you're going to repeat the cycle. You're going to do the same thing. And as if we needed any more proof positive that that's exactly the case, look at verses 53 and 54. As they went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So, woe number one, you're creating unnecessary burdens for people and exempting yourselves from those burdens. Woe number two, you disingenuously honor the prophets of old, but you're perpetuating the same system that caused your fathers to kill them, so you consent to that, and inevitably you're going to repeat the cycle. And then here's woe number three, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Here's my interpretation of that. Instead of opening the door for people to have fellowship with God, those you're leading, you're actually slamming the door shut because of your rule-based, rule-based attempt at fellowship with the living God. Similar to how the Pharisees were leading people astray with their focus on religious piety, so too are these lawyers leading people astray with their rule-keeping. They're supposed experts in the law who are supposed to be able to help people understand the heart of God, the purpose of of the law, the heart of God revealed in the law and the purpose of the law. But the exact opposite is happening. Now, those are the woes to the lawyers. And if you read this and you consider that, I don't think it's that hard to to see what's going on with these lawyers. But I think there's a temptation for us to go, all right, we're new covenant believers. This is not us. We don't do this. That's that's not us. I mean, we we understand by grace through faith and we, we, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace. We can quote those verses, can't we? Here's something that I think is really challenging to me. We become lawyerish. Everybody say lawyerish. We become lawyerish in our relationship with God when we place the emphasis on the rules we keep rather than the life we have. Let me say that again. We become lawyerish when we place the emphasis in our relationship with God on the rules we keep rather than the life we have. To which you might be saying, well, Bradley, I don't do that. That's that's not what I do. I I, I understand. We're going to take communion today. I know what that means. Just let me ask you this. And you don't have to answer out loud. I don't want you to raise your hand. Just think. How many of you at some point or another in your relationship with God, when things have gone bad for you, when you face hard times, struggles circumstantially, how many of you have concluded that that must be happening because you haven't been following the rules? Oh, things are not going well. I forgot to have my quiet time. I, I, I haven't read my Bible enough, so God's not happy with me, and therefore things are going bad for me. I, I haven't prayed enough. I've skipped church a bunch. I haven't been giving. I haven't been tithing, and that's why my finances are so bad. Conversely, how many of you, and, and I'm guilty of both of these, by the way. I'm not standing up here on a pedestal. 
How many of you have concluded that when things are going well for you, there's plenty of money in the bank, you're healthy, your marriage is good, your kids are behaving, the business is going well, everything's exactly like you want it to be, everybody's getting along, that that's because you've been praying, you've been fasting, you haven't forgotten your quiet time, and you've not missed one single month of paying your tithes. God must be happy with me because I've been keeping the rules. I've been checking all the boxes, and that must be why things are going so well. Are we not guilty of this? Are we not guilty of becoming like these lawyers in our own way? Where instead of focusing on the life we have in Christ, we're focused on how well or how not well we're keeping the rules. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? Let me make you a little more uncomfortable. Don't answer out loud. I want you to think about it. Should you keep the Ten Commandments? Should you keep the Ten Commandments? If your answer is yes, which ones? Should you keep the Sabbath? If so, how should you keep it? What does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean you should worship on Saturday and not Sunday? Does that mean you shouldn't work? Does that mean that oh, it, it, it's okay on this if I keep the Sabbath, if I don't do my job, anything related to my job, but it's okay if I work in my yard? No, 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 that's, that's still labor. So if, 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 as long as I don't do my job, and I don't work in my yard, I I can do leisurely things like go to the lake, and it's okay to do the work of loading my boat on the trailer. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Can you check your email? Notification pops up on your phone on Sunday. If you somehow get around the fact that Sabbath, according to Old Testament law, was on Saturday, You somehow get around that, and you go, okay, well, my Sabbath's on Sunday because Jesus rose on Sunday. So notification pops up on your phone about an email that's work-related that you're going to have to address first thing Monday morning. Do I just have to, oh, Lord, lead me not into temptation? You see where this goes? You see how the Pharisees and the scribes got where they got? We do the same things if we're not careful. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid this trap? Because it is a trap, and it's real, and these three woes, I might argue, we need to pay attention to as much so, if not more, than the woes Jesus gave to the Pharisees. We must understand this. We must understand this. God never... Everybody say never. He never intended for the law to justify people. Never. Wait a minute, I thought that was just after the cross. No, God never in redemptive history intended for law to make people righteous. For rule keeping to be the means by which We enter into right standing with God. He never intended that. Bradley, that sounds crazy. Can you prove it? Yes, I can. Thank you very much. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? Now, this is Abraham. I taught through Romans. I called this Exhibit A. Abraham, Father Abraham, for crying out loud, nobody's going to question whether or not Abraham was justified. Forget the fact that he was a pagan idol maker when God said, Come, go to a land that I will show you. He was making his own, he was minding his own business, making idols to pagan, false gods, and God said to him, Abraham, get up, let's go. I've got a promise for you. 
So what did Abraham gain according to the flesh? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, if he did something that merited God's favor in his life, Abraham could go, look, I'm proof positive you can earn your way into favor with God. But that's not the case. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham what? Believe, say it again, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 10, skip to verse 10 in Romans 4. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? God is so meticulous in executing his plan. Circumcision was not instituted until after Abraham was counted righteous. It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Why? Because God wanted it to be known from the get-go. Justification, righteousness, will not be through works of the law. Before Moses, before the Ten Commandments, God made it clear that his intention was to justify his people, make them righteous through faith. From Genesis to Revelation, at which point we might ask, well, then what's the point of the law? If that's true, why then the law? Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul goes right there, doesn't he? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. Who's that? Jesus. Very good. To whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, not those who keep the rules. I know this is uncomfortable because, and I'm going to get to why it's uncomfortable in just a minute, but here's what Paul just said. I'll sum it up, two statements. Number one, the law was given to preserve a people for God, Israel, until the fullness of time when Christ would come through that bloodline. God gave the law to keep his people separate and holy, to preserve them, to keep them together in order that he might fulfill his promises to Eve, to Abraham, to Moses, to Noah, to David, in order all of those promises get fulfilled in Christ. And Paul will say in Galatians, in the fullness of time, which means at just the exact right moment, Christ came to fulfill those promises that were made, all those covenants that were made. That's one reason for the law was to preserve the people of God. Here's the second reason, and it's even more potent, to make it abundantly here, uh, clear in the meta-narrative of redemptive history that righteousness could never come from law-keeping. Why? Because we can't keep the rules. We... we we, we, we look at the Ten Commandments even, and we go, yeah, I, I can do at least most of those. Right? I'm not sure what to do with the Sabbath, but I, I can at least keep most of those. So maybe it's just, we, we just do nine of them now, not the Sabbath, because it's okay to go to the lake and do work and put out uh, bark mulch in your flower beds on Sunday. That's not the point. It's never been the point. God didn't give those commandments so that we could sort of be like horseshoes and hand grenades. We just got to get close. 
So if the purpose of the law, listen, the purpose of the law is not to make people righteous. If rule-keeping is not the basis upon which we are justified, is the law for us? 1 Timothy chapter eight, chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, and the first part of verse 9. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, if it's used for the purpose, if it's understood to be for the purpose for which God intended it, which Paul's already explained for us in Galatians. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Let me ask you, you don't have to answer out loud, but just answer in in yourself. Are you ungodly? Are you a sinner? Are you unjust? Or are you an adopted, justified, perfectly righteous child of God? Your answer is the latter. Here's what Paul just said. The law is not for you. It's not for you. To which we go, oh man, the wheels are coming off. What is he telling us? We push back on that. Why? Why is this offending us? Why are we jostled in our souls this morning as we consider? I'm not making this up. If you think I'm just giving you my opinion, then you haven't paid attention to the scriptures we just read. It could not be more plain. The law is not for the justified. Are you justified? Raise your hand. It's not for you. We push back. Why? Because we think we want or we think we need, or both, rules to follow. It's like my daughter. She's not in here. I can talk about her in the service. She's coming of age. She's 13. She's incredibly talented. She's smart. She's so well-behaved. We just... I hardly remember having to discipline her. We tuck her in at bed at night, and she loves to read when she gets in the bed till she gets sleepy. And over the years, as she would do this every night, we'd pray, we'd kiss her, we'd tell her goodnight, we love you. She opens a book, How Long Can I Read? And that time has gotten later and later as she's gotten older. You can read till 830. You can read till 9 o'clock. You can read till 9.30. You can read till 10. But of late, I've been saying this to her, baby. Just read till you get sleepy. And you know what she says to me? No, I want a time. I want a time. She does not like that. She's like her mama. She's a rule follower by nature. She wants a time because the last thing she wants is to do something wrong and compromise her favor with me. Do something that might hurt her and compromise her right standing with me. And what she needs to learn, what she needs to understand, ultimately, foundationally, is that there's nothing you could do to compromise your right standing with me. You're my daughter. But yet we think we need a system. We think we want a system that we could manage, a set of rules we could keep. Because why? Because that gives me control. That gives, me, that gives me a sense of safety. But hear me. That's not the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, 
there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Why did Jesus do this? In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. How? Say it. Say it again. Say it one more time. Say it one more time. Not by us. In us, who walk not according to the flesh. That's where we keep rules. But according to the, this is what God has been making known since the fall, folks. His intention is not to justify people, to make them righteous. By rules. And last week I asked the question, what is it that makes Jesus so offensive? What is it that makes him so controversial? Why do people push back from the table and hate him and want to kill him? Why are these lawyers wanting to kill him? Because he just doesn't validate external behaviors and appearances like we would like him to. He talks about something deeper, something more ultimate, something more transformative that could never, ever happen by a system that we could manage. When God justifies by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone, how many of you understand he doesn't just clean the outside of the cup or the outside of the dish and leave the inside full of mold and bacteria. That's where law-keeping gets us. Law-keeping, rule-based Christianity gets us clean on the outside but leaves us filthy on the inside. And that was never the purpose of the law. The law didn't fail. The law did exactly what God intended it to do. It preserved a nation, preserved generations and a genealogy in order to get Jesus here in the fullness of time. It also batted a thousand in terms of making it clear human beings can't keep the law and make themselves righteous. The law did exactly what God intended it to do. All along the way, God kept saying through the prophets that the likes of these lawyers killed and persecuted. One day I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. One day I'm going to write their laws, my, my laws, on their hearts. He started pointing to this inward work that he was ultimately going to do. He was saying it all along. The law is not here to justify you. But there were promises made. Promises made to the likes of Abraham and Noah and Moses and David that someone, not something, someone is coming. And in the fullness of time, Paul says, he showed up and he said, I haven't come to abolish the law. I, not you, not we, I came to fulfill it. Christian life is not rule-based living. Rather, it's living a transformed life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You know this. After Paul says, you know the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, greed, licentiousness, malice, anger, hatred, you know all that. It's easy. We try to hide it, but we're familiar with it. But verse 22, but the fruit, you know there's a difference between fruit 
and works. Work means I do it. Fruit means it's being produced. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Why? Because if we're living like that, we don't need a law. Jesus said the whole law could be summed up. The whole law, 613, could be summed up like this. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. We could fire everybody in Washington if we lived like that. We would need the law. Jesus said, John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know what keeps a husband from cheating on his wife and a wife from cheating on her husband? Love. You could do obligatory compliance for a while. But glad-hearted affection will spill over into covenant keeping. Jesus comes and says, God's going to fulfill both sides of the covenant. You couldn't do it. God's going to fulfill both sides. He's going to keep his word and he's going to keep yours. How? His son is going to live a perfectly righteous life. He will never fail. He will never sin, though he's tempted, like we are. He will live perfectly righteous, and as he hangs on a cross, God the Father is going to treat him like he did the things that we do. And on the heels of that perfect sacrifice, God's going to treat us like we do what he did. That's why one of the greatest statements I've ever heard about the Christian life, what it means to live it out, is this. It's not our performance that determines God's verdict over our lives. It's God's verdict based in the performance of Christ that then gives rise to how we live. Why? Because he puts his spirit in us. And you might grieve him. You might live in ways that are incongruent with the life you have at times. But that doesn't mean that the solution is to go back and try to memorize the rules, pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and try to keep them. The Christian life is nothing less than a transformed life because our affections have been changed. It's why there are tears in your eyes right now. You have affection for Jesus. You love him. Prone to wonder but you love him. And if we would ask the Holy Spirit, it's interesting that after Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That he goes on to say, and I'll ask the Father. And he's going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit who will be with you and in you. And one of the primary things I think the Holy Spirit helps us with is affection for Jesus. Love God all your heart. Affection for God that gives rise to fruit, not rule keeping. I don't want to be like these lawyers. They killed the prophets. I want to run to the cross and fall 
to my knees. Say, oh, Lord, thank you. I don't want a system I could manage. I want resurrection power on the inside of me. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Why are you trying to keep rules? Why not lean into that power? Power that gives you, power that transforms you and me from people who hate the light and love the darkness to people who love the light and hate the darkness. If I love light and hate darkness, I don't need rules. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow. We don't need the law. We need grace. We don't need rule keeping. We need the gift of faith. Because by grace through faith in Jesus, we are transformed. We are brought from death to life. And we are given the spirit to live a different kind of life. It's taken me 45 years, not 45, because I, I mean, 25 years to finally see this. That my relationship with God does not hinge on how well I'm behaving. But there is power at work in me. That God has began a work, begun a work in me that He's going to be faithful to complete. That I've been predestined and called according to His purpose to be conformed to the image of His Son. He's doing that. And the best thing I could do is just give in. Not because I'm trying to keep a rule, but because I'm wholly given over to this Jesus. See the difference? As we come to the Lord's table, this is what I want us to reflect on. Colin, you can come. This is what I want us to reflect on. And, and by the way, we're going to literally come to his table today. You might notice there's no baskets with plastic bags and that god-awful grape juice we've been using for the last two years. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, what? I don't know. It, trust me. When, when you taste today, if you've been here for the previous communions, you're going to be thankful. We're going to, we, that was a COVID protocol that we're, we're ceasing today. Instead, we're going to come. We're going to actually, in just a minute, stand up, and you're going to come to the front. Those of you who are believers, communion is for believers. Communion is for those who have been transformed. This is not, listen, contrary to what is taught in other places, this is not a means by which you are justified. This is not a work we're doing today. Okay? What, what we're going to do as we come, we're going to reflect on the fact that God has done something in his son Jesus Christ that we could not do for ourselves. There's no system he could give us or a set of rules that would accomplish what this has accomplished. We have the opportunity this morning to lean into that work and to the glad-hearted affection that by the power of the Spirit spills over into spiritual fruit, not keeping rules. So as you come, what you're going to find is that there are two cups that are stacked. The cup on the top has good Welch's grape juice. And the cup on the bottom, in, in the bottom of that cup, has the bread. Okay? So just come and grab one stack. Each individual believer who comes can do that, and then you can just return to your seat. You can just kind of do a little 
little you here on either side and return to your seat. Remain standing as you return to your seat and wait until all have received. And then we're going to take together in just a few minutes. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come. Lord, it took a third of the book of Romans for Paul to answer all the questions that come to the surface when we talk about this. And we have rehearsed today what is, I think, the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of the good news of Jesus Christ that we are made righteous, we don't earn it. And we've talked about that a lot, but sometimes I think we fall short of getting our minds fully around what that means. So forgive us for the times that we are like the lawyers, for the times that we've put burdens on ourselves and others that were unhelpful and unnecessary, for the times that we've lauded God's messengers, but at the same time, we've, by our actions and our deeds, we've, we've essentially killed them. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for leading others astray in this kind of, kind of thing and, and failing to realize, Lord, that the key to knowledge, the entrance into the kingdom, comes by way of a gift of faith not works of keeping law. So as we come, I pray we would reflect on that. Holy Spirit, do the work in us, in us, in us. Transform us from the inside out, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Invite you to come as you're able. If anyone is unable to come, our host team members will serve you in just a minute. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.